0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let LetItRollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Ed Ward and Nate talk about the bloating of the music business in the early 70s and the feeling that everyone was waiting on something to happen. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm very happy to be welcoming back Ed Ward, for the final chapter of our discussion series on The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964-1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock. Ed, welcome back. Uh, Glad to be here. And so you titled Chapter 8, Waiting for the Renaissance, and it's got a picture of the New York Dolls in the chapter header, and you credit this quote or you attribute it to Lester Bangs. What's he talking about?
2: Well, you know, Lester, at this point, was uh, living in Detroit and working for Cream magazine. And Cream was the snotty teenage upstart to Rolling Stone's Grand Old Man. And um, Lester believed that a lot, of, a lot of what was being hyped by the establishment was not really rock and roll. It wasn't really useful it was, it was just product. And um, a lot of people agreed with him, which is one reason Cream was was such a uh, successful magazine at the time. But the the idea that this wasn't rock and roll, this plodding, you know, lyric oriented, um, slowed down music was, was not what, we had gotten you know, what we had, had planned for as teenagers. You know, grew up. We wanted either to to have some complexity true to our um, to our pop music, but really a rethink was necessary, and that's what Lester was talking about. It was the idea that things were reaching a lot of different kinds of dead ends.
1: And it was time to shake it up a little bit. And let's talk a little bit more about the music, the business of music journalism. And you you summed it up, basically, we've got Rolling Stone out of San Francisco, which is a big tabloid size, size magazine that is very ensconced with the new rock and roll establishment. And by 74, 75, this is a big establishment. They are selling gazillions of records, concerts There's stadium tours now. Bands like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Led Zeppelin, even ZZ Top are packing stadiums. The Beatles' old attendance records are being shattered all the time. And this is big, big money. FM radio is on top. Uh, Rock and roll is getting on TV, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I think it's important to emphasize for people in 2020 when magazines are at best an afterthought, how important magazines were in the 70s and Cream is a slick smaller magazine that I can remember seeing you know at 7-11s and gas stations and it owned the field there was really nobody else talking about hard rock and roll at the time well and there was no social media then i mean nowadays if
2: you're if you've got an enthusiasm you can post it on twitter and facebook and instagram and everything there really was a feeling that people needed to be in touch with each other. And so a magazine was the cheap and dirty way to do that. Um, And that's why there were so many rock magazines. It wasn't just Cream and Rolling Stone. There was um, many, many titles that have been thankfully forgotten, like Zoo World. Who would name a rock magazine Zoo World? Somebody (laughs) did. Yes, somebody did. uh, There there was Circus Magazine, which was weird sort of semi-teeny bop magazine,
1: and... um, Yeah, that's a good correction, because I remember Circus, and it was like a slightly dumber version of Cream, but I frequently, I at the time thought... They were published by the same people the way that my pro wrestling magazines had two different versions that came out in alternating weeks. And it was only later when I got older that I realized there was an enormous gulf between what was going on at Cream and what Circus was doing.
2: Well, and it's also the difference between New York and Detroit. Yes. You know, the the Detroiters were inordinately proud of their rock scene up there and, and they felt they were contributing something to the national conversation which they were
1: yes and that's that's a scene that we talked about in previous episodes that really i don't know you could say it started with the mc5 at the grande ballroom but that definitely brought it to a head but then produced a series of acts ted Nugent, and boy dukes alice cooper although he came from california arizona he broke big in the Midwest. Grand Funk Railroad broke big in the Midwest. They had established a really sort of meat and potatoes, rock and roll style, and were making an impact. But I'm glad you brought up New York, because two of the most important acts of this period are coming out of New York, coming from kind of similar places, surprisingly, in retrospect, but headed for very, very different destinations. I'm talking about Kiss and the New York Dolls.
2: Right. They were, well, see, having a rock scene in New York was something of a an innovation. New York had not had a good live music scene because of the cabaret laws. You had to have a cabaret card in order to um, appear in a place that served alcohol. and The cops were really, it was the New York Police Department that issued these cards, and and they were going to keep things pure. Um, There's a famous story about Thelonious Monk riding in a car with Bud Powell. Bud Powell gets pulled over. The cops discover that he is in possession, Powell is in possession of of, uh, heroin, and Monk, who's in possession of nothing except an immense talent, loses his cabaret card. He spent spent just about every nickel he made trying to get his cabaret card back just so he could play piano in a bar. And uh, so this was obviously not an attractive route for uh, rock musicians. Uh, There were no clubs. I mean, it was something of a of a revolutionary act for a bunch of old folkies like the Love and Spoonful to actually have a gig at um, the Night Owl, which was a bar in Greenwich Village, where they played amplified music.
1: And you had some other bands in the suburbs like Vanilla Fudge uh, and others that came out of the greater New York and the Rascals, the Little Rascals and later the Rascals, uh, came out of that same suburban Long Island scene. But when the New York Dolls start doing gigs at the Mercer Arts Center, it's a very different approach.
2: Well, yeah, what that's all about is having a music scene in Manhattan. The the Bridge and Tunnel people, that's one thing. I mean, that, that scene has always been there and was continuing to be there. You missed Twisted Sister in your, um, in, in your list of uh, bridge and tunnel bands. I mean, they had an immense fan base. Uh, I was really su- surprised to find that out. But a friend of mine made a, uh, a film about Twisted Sister that ends at the moment they get their big recording contract.
1: Yeah, and, and other bands like the Dictators that, that come along just a little after the New York Dolls follow that route too, but the Dolls are in Manhattan, and they're also almost unique among American artists at this time, very hip to the glam scene that's going on in England. hmm Well, the Dolls were too, but... Well, yeah, that's who I was they... referring to. The Dolls were the, the ones that were the leaders of American glam. You you You
2: would never you know, intuit how they were dressed just by listening to one of their records. their their records, you know, sound like in the greatest
1: tradition of the Rolling Stones. Absolutely. And as a kid, I can remember my older brother, who was probably a high school freshman or sophomore and a diligent reader of Cream and Circus, coming home one weekend with the first Aerosmith album and the first New York Dolls album. And at the time, they seemed exact, like very contemporary. Here are two bands playing hard rock and roll, modeled on the Rolling Stones. The same fans are going to be into them, but history shows that their fan bases took very different paths. And I love how you describe the New York Dolls as um, becoming yet another in a series of very influential failures.
2: Right. That's exactly what they, they were. They, they didn't really sell records at all. Um, And uh, their management was completely disastrous. Uh, The record company didn't know what to do with them. And a lot of the fans didn't either because they, um, you know, the the dressing up factor sort of, I don't know, it,
1: it missed misdirected the fans. It absolutely did, and and I know from personal experience in the Texas Panhandle well into the 80s when my redneck heavy metal friends would see, and I'm a redneck too, I'm using that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm entitled to that slur, but they would see that album cover and totally reject the New York Dolls, even if they were slightly maybe open to some hard rock sounding punk. But, just a couple years later, Poison comes along and is openly dressing in drag, and they're buying those cassettes by the million.
2: Right. But well, that was, was because they, they learned, the industry learned how to market maybe a little better, and also because of video, but that's another...
1: Yes, and, and we should mention that the New York Dolls' heroin problems were also a big a detriment to their career. But let's hear a little bit of the New York Dolls. And this is Jet Boy after the first album. Yeah. That boy, for my dollar there, apotheosis, the peak, apotheosis, the peak of New York Dolls. David Johansson on vocals, Johnny Thunders on lead guitar, Syl Sylvain on rhythm, Killer Kane on bass, Jerry Nolan on drums. I don't know why I'm giving them the full shout out, but I just love the New York Dolls. And, and I definitely don't think they got attention that they deserved some of that due to their own fault. But Kiss is another group of young musicians in in New York City. And these guys are sharp. I mean, Gene Simmons is writing his graduate thesis on Kabuki theater and blackface and how to incorporate that potentially into a rock and roll act. And when he sees the New York Dolls, it all falls into place.
2: Right, and, and the Dolls had um, even auditioned Peter Criss, the, um, the, the Kisses drummer, uh, and rejected him. When they needed to uh, replace their original drummer, um, but Kiss, I don't know. Kiss was smart in that they didn't promote themselves as a New York phenomenon. I mean, the very name of the New York Dolls tells you exactly who they were. Who they thought they were? They were from New York, but Kiss had their eyes on a bigger prize, I think. And um, although they weren't particularly skilled as musicians, they were, um, they had something that uh, attracted vast quantities of people
1: and they had a record company that knew how to promote that. And that was Casablanca, which is making big money in disco, but took time out to invest in KISS. And it was a haul. The first three albums came out to very little attention. And my older brother, the rock and roll snob, was into KISS until they got popular with KISS Alive and and just blew the doors off. And that's when me and my third grade friends became devoted members of the KISS army. I mean, any Gen Xer male of that era is overwhelmingly likely to have a passionate fondness for a kiss from their childhood. Right. And, but see, kiss was, um,
2: they were really slandered by the rock press, you know, Rolling Stone wouldn't give them the time of day. And that's, that's what cream picked up on was and, and circus was that these were, I don't know, they were dolls, you know, they, they, they were, funny looking things you could you could really relate to as as um as an act as opposed to just a bunch of guys in you know flannel shirts and jeans staring at their shoes and and moaning about how miserable they were
1: <laughs> absolutely and I sold millions but you summarize sort of the state of the industry in 75 and you talk about the way that even though, sure, there are hits, there are hit singles and hit albums, and they're selling a lot of records, there's no real dominant sound in this period. The the number one albums don't stay at the top as long as they had in 73, 74, definitely not as long as they did in 1970, and same with the singles. There's just a sort of malaise on the scene. Right, and that's what Lester intuited, that, that
2: if anything shook that up, that it would it would rule, it would just completely take over. And he wasn't quite
1: correct, but it was it was a good insight. Yes, there's definitely something coming just around the corner. And while it won't take over, it's definitely going to make its mark. Let's talk about a couple of pieces of unfinished business from the last episode that I wanted to get to and didn't. And the first is what was going on with Soul. We talked a lot about funk and and jazz fusion and many other forms of African-American music a couple episodes ago. But we left out people like Bill Withers, What's Going On at Motown, and Gamble and Huff in Philly. Right, Gamble and Hub have had
2: a long history of, you know, doing record production and and helping out Philadelphia bands, and finally they um, they joined together as a business partnership and got themselves a, a label, and with the money that they got for that, they were able to assemble a really amazing house band which provided them with their own sound. You could you could tell a, a Gamble and Huff production immediately when you heard it on the radio, and you did hear it on the radio because they were able to move a whole lot of records. Uh, Bill hey, Withers, I know almost, I was gonna say, I almost know nothing about Bill Withers, except he was part of a very small movement of acoustic-oriented, Black folky, almost, songwriters who were very close to uh, to uh, folkies, and um, he, his career didn't last long, nor was he all that influential at the time, but he was an important figure while, while his career lasted.
1: And he had a long-term influence. And yeah, and people like Terry Collier, uh, I would throw in. Donnie Hathaway is another one. It didn't quite coalesce into a movement, but there are definitely a bunch of sort of semi-eccentric African-American musicians. Taj Mahal maybe even could be lumped in that category a little bit. Um, But even Rodriguez, who later becomes famous from the Searching for Sugar Man documentary, is is right in there with him. There's something going on where not every black musician is following James Brown down the funk road. But let's hear a gamble and huff production. This is one of my favorites. This is Harold and the Melvin, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes doing I miss you. I miss you baby. Oh. I
3: miss you baby. I miss you. Miss you miss I swear you, I do.
1: And that's Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes doing I Miss You, produced by Gamble and Huff with that incredible Philly band backing them up. And that sound is very close to what's going to be known as disco. Well, yeah. There's elements I mean, in common.
0: It's the, laying the uh, groundwork.
1: The,
2: the, the, the rhythm section is um is one that will be copied a lot by um the more i don't know mechanical disco records um what was different was that they were there was an actual band playing there and and um, they weren't going for a disco hit they were going for a hit wherever it came from
1: and and they were able to penetrate AM radio. I can remember hearing a number of Gamble and Huff productions on AM radio when my sister was tuning in to hear Jim Croce or whatever she was into at the time, and that was pretty distinct at the time. Not a lot of black artists were breaking through. Right, it's true. They they um,
2: they had a, a a new formula. You know, they studied how Motown had become successful and applied it to their own work
1: without being imitative and and broke through big meanwhile another mainstay of african-american rhythm and blues over the past decade or so stack records Stack's records is in its death throes
2: yeah well that that was bad bad financial management and um i don't know basically getting screwed by the establishment um Saks also had had more or less lost their identity when they, um, after, after Otis Redding's death, they, they turned away from using Booker T and the MGs as their core to their studio band. And as a result, they more or less turned their back on, on the rougher gospel blues oriented stuff that had, had made them famous. So they, they lost
1: their identity. Although they continued to sell records for a while. And I mean, and I got to quibble a little bit because they had big hits with the Staple Singers, Johnny Taylor and others. They were still recording with the Muscle Shoals guys, which is sort of anathema for Stax to go down and record with the Swampers, their biggest rivals. But yeah, I see what you're saying on the big point. But the Clive Davis deal, tell us about Clive Davis, Columbia Records and how Clive Davis's kids bar mitzvah ended up being one of the death blows of Stax Records.
2: Yeah, Clive Davis was a a hotshot young lawyer who managed to claw his way up to uh, becoming the head of CBS, you know, uh, CBS Records, CBS Music. And um, he he definitely put his his fingerprint on what they were signing. And he was also looking for deals where, you know, you could get a label – and uh, used it as a profit center, and Stax was definitely potentially that, as was, you know, Philly International, Philadelphia International, Gamble and Huff's operation. So the, he wound up getting all of those, which was a, a real boon for um, Columbia, because Columbia had never been uh, a major force in Black music before. Columbia and Warner Brothers were were as white and... and um, you know, as corporate as could be. And for Clive to do this coup by acquiring Philly International and Stacks, um, not owning Stacks, but running its business through Columbia, giving it um, access to Columbia's excellent distribution network, you know, that, that, that helped them out at a time when they really needed it. And they'd also become, not um i don't know not not as identifiable as they had been there wasn't that that stack
1: sound they had to change that and that's what they did and clive gets arrested and part of the charges are that he's funneled record company money into paying for things like his kids bar mitzvah he claims it was a legit business expense because everybody in the record industry was there But he's taken out, and it's essentially revealed that they had, once again, like they had with Jerry Wexler in Atlantic back in the day, a deal with a person more than a company, but this time it's not written down. They can't get out of the contract, and it ends up, by the end of of the war between Columbia and Stax, Stax is destroyed, and it's revealed that Columbia had filled their warehouses up with Stax product that it never sold, never even tried to ship out. So, right. And that was that was also the death blow, not only for
2: Stax, but also for uh, Big Star and the other white
1: bands that assigned to that, that operation. And two more things I want to bring up before we, we close the door on Stax, and that's the almost simultaneous or the near-contemporaneous deaths of Packy Axton and Al Jackson Jr. Tell us about those two guys and why they were so important to Stax and what was lost when they died. Well, Packy
2: Axton was the
1: reason Sachs came into business in the first place. He
2: he had a band which he, he called the Marquis, and they recorded a, a record named Last Night. And um, his mother was uh, running a record store, and um, her brother was a country fiddler who decided to, um, that Rhythm and Blues was a, a profitable thing to get into. So from the very beginning, Packy was, you know, knee-deep in, in Stacks records, even though he was an out-of-control alcoholic and in the process of drinking himself to death. What happened to Al Jackson is, is still a mystery to me. Um, some guy came up off the sidewalk and shot him dead. And this was a tragedy not only for Stacks, but also for uh, Memphis other record labels, Goldwax and High, because Al Jackson apparently never slept. He was always playing on a session. He was that good.
1: Yeah, and there's there's bottomless mysteries to this, as I've discussed with Robert Gordon in previous installments of the show. Some people think his wife was involved. It's, it's very sad, very unknown, and just, you know, at the end of the day, another brilliant African-American musician dying a violent death in America, and... You know, it happens in the context of Stacks. And one detail that I didn't know from Robert Gordon book, that they, you know, Al Bell was a very, very resourceful business manager. And he almost nailed a Hail Mary pass to save Stacks with a financial deal with the House of Saud that's undone when King Faisal is assassinated in Riyadh. Yeah, it, it, that's
2: the kind of hustle that you would expect from Al Bell. You know, oh, yeah, I just happen to have a a shake in my back pocket who uh, has
1: trillions of dollars to pour into our record company. And and almost pulled it off, if not for a stabbing by one of his uncles, I think, or a brother, half brother, who who wanted the throne instead. But let's move on to what's going on in television right now. They're still struggling to find a perfect home for rock and roll on TV. Dick Clark's still out there with American Bandstand, but it really hasn't advanced at all since the early '60s. And you've got a number of people working on sort of a holy grail: the late night concert show.
2: Yeah, well, that that was that was because nobody really knew where to put a live rock and roll show. you putting it in prime time was not a good idea. They also noticed that FM radio was getting numbers after midnight, you know, which was not a place where television was um, particularly active, you know, they put on old movies and stuff overnight. And, and so late in the evening, was, was where a rock and roll performance television show would be, uh, would be a good idea. Uh,
1: they went up against, um, against the late night talk shows and, and won for a while. Yeah, you've got In Concert on ABC, and you've got uh, The Midnight Special on NBC, and Don Kirshner, you know, the famous King of the Brill Building in the early 60s, has his rock concert in syndication, and they're all doing pretty well, but they can't quite get the sound right. And really, King Biscuit Flower Hour on FM Radio was a much better sound for music fans.
2: Well, because they had, you know, as somebody during this period noted, nobody did television for sound there was just no way to do it the speakers in your best television sets were tiny little things you know that they weren't made for music but um and and some people went to the simulcast model where you tune in your um your fm radio and then just turn down the sign the sound on your television set and then you'd have you know, the, the picture and stereo, but it took two machines to do it. So they were just getting
1: getting it figured out. And at the same time, record companies are starting to begin what's going to be a 30-year war that, in some ways, they ultimately lose. But record companies are very concerned with home taping. Right. Home taping is killing music, and it's illegal.
2: <laughs> Neither are those statements. True, but that was the ad that the RIAA put in music magazines and in and, and trade magazines and even billboards. It, it was ridiculous. Nobody believed it. You know, it was like being told that marijuana leads you to heroin, you know, but enough people had tried it that they knew it wasn't true. And also the RIAA suppressed their own report that people who taped the most music bought the most music
1: which was
2: contrary to their narrative
1: yeah and they're gonna have uh repeated rounds of this uh throughout but in the 70s it's home taping that's killing the music meanwhile we've already talked a little bit about some heroin casualties uh Billy Marcia, or the original drummer of the New York Dolls, was one. I also killed uh, Robbie McIntosh, the drummer from the brilliant white Scots funk band, The Average White Band. But there's another drug on the scene, cocaine. What's it doing to the record industry? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it
2: was weird. The, the word on the street was that cocaine was expensive, but... It was not addictive, which was a total lie. And what it's doing is encouraging people to um, to use it because they weren't going to get hooked, right? But it also had a bunch of a bunch of side effects b- besides being addictive. It was um, I'm trying to think of how to how to put this best. It changed people's personalities and made them far more abrasive. Also, for the record industry, one thing it seemed to do was um, affect the frequencies that people could hear. So so records came out with very low bass and very high treble. Uh, All of a sudden, you you got these cocaine mixes uh, on on some of the records that... um, well, I mean, getting played on the radio is one thing. but When you take the records home and listen to them, they really did sound weird. But um, you know, there were all kinds of coke jokes everywhere. There, the uh, uh, classified ads in the back of uh, Rolling Stone. Uh, jewelers were selling silver coke spoons through the mail.
0: You
2: know, <laughs> it was it was a real big fad, and um, I guess.
1: People um, people learned their lesson too late. A lot of people did. And let's hear one artist who was dramatically influenced by his massive use of cocaine. But fortunately, it didn't result in terrible music like it did with, say, Black Sabbath and some people say Fleetwood Mac's Tusk album. I'm talking about the thin white Duke, David Bowie, who's already changed away from Ziggy Stardust, gone into funk and soul with Young Americans Then he comes out with Station to Station and has a new persona and a new direction. Here's the title song from David Bowie, Station to Station. And that was David Bowie's Station to Station, which is a reasonably commercially successful album. We talked in the last episode about how he had blown up enormously in England with Ziggy Stardust and then had some difficulty selling himself in the States. But over the course of multiple tours and multiple albums, he's breaking through. He had a number one hit with Fame, co-written with John Lennon. And Station to Station establishes him as an artist with room to move artistically yeah he he was
2: um but it was also affecting his his personality he um he had this flirtation with fascism and and nazi imagery and and stuff like that. it wasn't until he sort of settled down from that that uh, he became more popular in
1: the united States he was yeah you know, he, he was too dramatic for a while <laughs> yeah he he gets into some dark personal roads not just nazism but and cocaine but the occult as well he's hanging out with uh, glenn Hughes, the bass player for deep purple mark three and and definitely goes down some very dark roads and many musicians are in that boat john lennon harry Nilsson, keith moon are out there in la but meanwhile there's a businessman in la i'm talking about david geffen who becomes the absolute king of the scene in california well, he, he had been in partnership
2: with Elliot Roberts, who was the manager of so many of these West Coast singer-songwriters, Joni Mitchell, you know that that crowd, and um, he saw a hole in in the uh, in the pop landscape to fill with well-made, um, almost machine-made singer songwriter records
1: and so he uh, he moves into that and and shipped big units and you talk about the record the first record that he did with bob dylan on asylum records after dylan leaves albert grossman and leaves columbia records and that the joke was that the album shipped gold and returned platinum what's that about well that's that's about this
2: Plot that he had to get the top five albums in Billboard in one week. He um, he had a bunch of, of records that were selling very well, and uh, the um, the deal with um, with the uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the
1: record. So Planet Planet Waves. Yeah, Planet Waves by There's Bob Dylan, Court and Spark by Joni Mitchell, and I can't remember the Carly Simon album, but he pulled off the one two three at least.
2: Yeah, and yet that was achieved, many people thought, by a a semi-illegal process called trance shipping, in which the albums themselves never fell into the hands of actual consumers, but record stores were buying them and, and receiving them and then returning them for um, for full credit, which was the record company's um, uh, deal at the time. you could you know, return your record and and uh, get either full credit or another title uh, if you were a record store. so these these records are were winding up with uh, large quantities of records that they either did or didn't order, and then sending them on through the distributor. To yet another destination, and the record may never have been picked up and sold, and actual actually opened and played by a consumer. So the the numbers
1: that were floating around the the record industry were suspect. And and well, one art one of the artists there that's in the middle of this is Bob Dylan, and he does a couple of tours around this time that I think are very representative of the business in two different directions. One is a megatour he does with the band in 1974, and the other is a much smaller thing and a very eccentric thing called the Rolling Thunder Review. Right, that was uh,
2: his idea. This was the point in his career when Bob Dylan decided he was also going to make films. And so um, Rolling Thunder, which was a bunch of Oh, his friends, basically, and hangers-on and, and a, a central band toured tour the um, toured the country and uh, filmed their adventures on the road in hopes that it would turn into a film. And I don't think it actually did, but...
1: Um, well, it did a again, couple years ago, I think, or just last year, maybe. Yeah, but Recently, they put it together. But, you know, he he had these ideas that
2: what he was doing was, Worth making a film out of, so he um, he did, and and um, yeah, it sh- it shone the spotlight on uh, some of his old friends like Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and um, new talent like um, Ronnie Blake. She was in in uh, Robert Altman's horrible film Nashville. But she actually did have talent. I mean, she could play and, and write songs, and so she she was on the the Rolling Thunder tour. Allen Ginsberg was on the Rolling Thunder tour. Um, it was it was a strange little thing, and and uh, I think it mostly fell apart. But it
1: was it was what Dylan was doing that at that point, and the fans were always interested. And it was a big contrast with the stadium tour where he's doing gigs to fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 people with the band just the year before. Talk about the band and their sort of career arc. I mean, and that 74 tour is kind of a comeback for both Dylan and the band. And the band had been huge in 68, 69 and, and had sort of petered out in a way over the years. How did they put a cherry on top at the end of it all? Well... Yeah. Robbie Robertson, who was the uh, the
2: band's guitar player, decided that it was time to break up the band. they They um, had done what they were going to do, and there were drug problems within the band. So um, he decided they would they would retire publicly by by doing a big um, concert at Winterland in San Francisco and showcase some of the acts they'd worked with. Of course, everybody wondered whether Bob Dylan would be one of them. It was a handy way of of packing the joint. Um, Bill Graham, who owned the uh, Winterland, he uh, decided that he would do this on Thanksgiving and provide Thanksgiving dinner for people willing to pay a large amount of money to uh, come to the event and uh, sit down. This is an era when a lot of the, particularly on the West Coast, a, a lot of the promoters had these, this idea of dressing up rock fans in tuxedos. I mean, there was a dress code for the for the um, the last waltz, I remember. I, I was not privileged to eat dinner and sit on the floor. I had to sit in bleachers where they had cleaned it by hosing it off, and the seats were still wet. But... Um, <laughs> You know, there was this this class system coming. Bob Skags was a real um, a real pioneer of this. He he um, held concerts where there was a dress code to go to a theater in Oakland and watch him and his band perform. You know, it, it was it was ridiculous. I I was supposed to go and and uh, they said a, a limousine. And and since I failed the dress code, I didn't go to the show, but I
1: wasn't heartbroken. (laughs) I'm glad you survived that. And meanwhile, there's a phenomenon of old Lang Syne and Something Old, Something New going on that that the rock family tree becomes a phenomenon where the artist Peter Frame makes a career, basically, of drawing elaborate family trees of which rock bands are connected to what rock bands. And groups like free of the late 60s, turn into things like Bad Company and the Small Faces spin out into both the Faces with Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood, ex the Jeff Beck Group, but they also turn into Humble Pie with the original lead singer of the Small Faces and Peter Frampton, who goes on to become a very unlikely superstar when he goes solo.
2: Yeah, he, um, Frampton is, is odd. He, he had his own band, The Herd, but all this recombinant DNA of rock bands during this period. um, He wound up with Humble Pie for a moment. I mean, Humble Pie was not exactly your most stable collection of guys. I'm sure Pete had a lot of fun with them in the family trees. And um, eventually, Frampton had his own band. It was just named after him. You know, nobody really can name who was who and his management decided that the thing to do would be to uh, capitalize on the fact that he hadn't really sold a whole lot of records but do a um, do a live album because the performance was so good Uh, and so he did a uh, live recording once again at uh, at winterland and um, graham was obligated to have him on for i think two weekends and he kept shifting opening acts to get people into the house. I remember I, I went to a couple of those performances and, and he really was not, nobody was looking forward to the headliner who <laughs> was Peter Frampton. They had Santana, they had Mott the Hoople, they had this Welsh band called Man, all of whom were, you know, quite popular at Winterland and that's how people got through the door. And since they were there, they always stayed for the headliner. But I, I believe that uh, most of the applause on Frampton Comes Alive was um, was dubbed in. Didn't keep it from becoming the best-selling album of of the
1: time, though. It was um, it was a massive hit. And let's hear Peter Frampton on the Midnight Special. This isn't from the live album, but this Frampton 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 Comes Alive, which sold a gazillion copies, but. Appearing live on the Midnight Special is integral to the promotion. This is, Do You Feel Like I Do? And that was Peter Frampton live on the Midnight Special doing his hit. Do you feel like I do? And as big as that album was, he was never really able to follow up on it.
2: Right. They um, well, he he apparently didn't have the the chops to write those kind of songs or, or keep a band together. I don't know what it was. He there was so there was so much talent at that point, as defined by the record industry, that. You know, it was all disposable. If the guy didn't come up with another smash hit, and of course, Frampton had sold so many units and of a double album, which uh, was twice the retail, you know, it was the same as buying two records uh, as far as the the money was concerned. But, um, you know, if, if an act like that couldn't follow up, forget it, you know, lose them.
1: Go on to the next thing. You know, the kids will buy whatever you throw in front of them. And there's tons of records being sold. And you, you briefly mentioned sort of a new wave of heavy rock groups, uh, Queen, Aerosmith, that we've already talked about, Rainbow, which spun out of Deep Purple, and Bob Seeger. What's the commonality between those groups? Why did you lump them together?
2: Well, mainly that they were hard rock, they were loud, and that um, they were popular, Queen, maybe not so much initially, but they became popular. Uh, Aerosmith had chart singles, and they also toured relentlessly, so everybody got to see Aerosmith. Rainbow was a heavy band from um, the, I think they they date back to um, the
1: Moody Blues originally. Um, mm. and, and Some of them do. I mean, Richie Blackmore came out of Deep Purple, and Ronnie James perfect. Dio had his own band called Elf, um, but was otherwise unknown in a very old, uh, I think he was in his mid-30s before he joined up with Rainbow, and it was an American.
2: Dio uh, was uh, releasing singles in the 50s. He was a lot <laughs> older than anybody knew he was. It you know, something that he shared with uh, Ian Hunter of,
1: uh, of, about the hoople. You know, these guys weren't teenagers. And and yet he's got a totally eccentric style, hip deep in swords and sorcery and, and all kinds of nonsense. And again, an artist that Gen Xers just love, although the Baby Boomer critics at the time hated this stuff. Like Queen in particular uh, was just loathed by the critical establishment at the time. I mean, what's that all about? Because like, keep in mind, to millennials, to Gen Xers and millennials, Queen is on this absolute pedestal of all-time greats. I know, you know that might be weird to you, but that's the fact. What is it about yeah, I, them that the boomers hated so much? Or some you know, boomers?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, there was so much talent. You, you could you could ignore somebody like that if they didn't meet your checklist of acceptable rock behavior. And, um, you know, I mean, it was pretty evident to a lot of people that Freddie Mercury was gay and um, also their um, their songwriting wasn't very pop although I you know it's it's, heaven knows what they were trying to accomplish they would sound different every single and um, then they came out with this thing called Bohemian Rhapsody which I never got that at all I never could see it had any structure you know so i guess a lot of people that was cool you know it was
1: they were loud and uh, they were flamboyant and they toured a lot that's what did it yeah and i can tell you as a third grader at the time i spent the entire summer of 77 or 78 getting up every morning, playing Monopoly with my buddy, Stan Cooper, and listening to Queen over and over again, unless we popped on Kiss. And and they locked us in young, and definitely the homophobia was an issue. I mean, it was a much bigger deal in the 70s to be gay uh, than it would become, than it is now, thankfully. But Freddie Mercury was definitely penalized for that by the cognoscente, but nonetheless made his mark sold out stadiums, sold platinum records, and the rock critics were basically they were influential, but they were unable to stop somebody like Queen. It, they, they couldn't kill it right. anymore. If you if you had told,
2: you know, anybody in the rock press back then that someday the life of Freddie Mercury would make for a big hit movie, they would roll laughing, you know, just It would make them crazy. Really? No, come on. (laughs) Come on from the future. This this is true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just a... And it's a very weird thing. I mean, Queen is a melange of like faux classical influences, choir boy singing, an obsession with the Beatles' overdubbing studio techniques. I think in some ways they are the true heirs to the Beatles, along with Electric Light Orchestra, uh, in the way they structured their music in the studio. And yet the overall package just seemed very ailing and threatening to, to the boomer critical establishment. And there's one other guy at the time that you work in there who has some left field hits and goes on to form to amass an immensely huge cult. And I'm talking about Jimmy Buffett. Wrap this up by telling us what the heck was the deal with Jimmy Buffett? Well, Jimmy Buffett initially appeared on the scene
2: as country rock, and he wrote really catchy songs. So he was considered to be, you know, a country rocker with a a weird um, overlay. Well, he had an image that was very well crafted it was this beach bum in in the south of florida and you know that was an aspirational thing just like living in Laurel canyon was i mean buffett knew what he was doing and uh, the fact that he blew up to the extent that he did maybe couldn't have been foreseen but uh, he was very definitely he was a favorite I, i had a couple of his albums myself i mean he was he was fun to listen to. He was a, a country rocker uh, in in the way that um, a lot of the other country rockers were were maybe too country too um, I don't know, too too
1: close to the horror that was Nashville. <laughs> and and let's wrap this up by going back to the other piece of unfinished business from the last episode, and that is what is going on in Nashville. I want to hit on Bar- Billy Sherrill and the co- country-politan sound, Waylon Jennings and the nascent Austin Rebellion, as well as eccentric songwriters like Shel Silverstein and Tom T. Hall.
2: Yeah, well, see, the thing is that Nashville controlled country music. And yet country music was a nationwide phenomenon. So um these, these odd songwriters were, I mean, you didn't have to look at them. You didn't have to know that, you know, Shell Silverstein was this weirdo who wrote children's books and lived on a houseboat. You know, it was he he was making money for the publishing firms as as were the other guys that you you mentioned, you know, Tom T. Hall was um he, he he, wrote Harper Valley PTA, you know, he wrote these these story songs, as they called them at that point. They were, you know, nothing more than ballads, which are a staple of folk music, but uh, it was considered weird to do that instead of the, you know, I, I love you, moon, June, you know, the
1: mama. standard honky-tonk drinking song. And you got to mention a Boy Named Sue was Shel Silverstein's massive, massive hit. And he also wrote cover of the Rolling Stone for Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. Well, what about Billy Sherrill and his production acumen uh, for artists like George Jones, Tammy Wynette, Johnny Paycheck? Well, he had this, this idea
2: of combining a string section with country music and, uh, that seemed to work out pretty well. Not only that, it put country music on the um, pop charts for the first time since the days of Elvis and Carl Perkins. So um, the money machine that was the music industry suddenly had its unhappy little cousin perk up and start grinding out more money. So uh, that that was what. That, that was what Billy Sherrill was all about. I mean, he started out at Sun Records as an engineer and um, realized that he had he had good ears, not only in terms of engineering, but arrangement and production. So that's what he, he went into, and he got hired by uh, Columbia Records, which in those days was still using only house producers. They didn't allow you to, you know... Pick your friend George and have him come in the studio and produce your record. You know, he couldn't do that without passing an audition as an official Columbia
1: recording uh, producer or engineer. So, and, um, and that's the very system that people like Willie Nelson, who had to sign with Atlantic and their attempted country uh, venture, which failed to do a couple albums, and his buddy Waylon Jennings. Uh, is breaking from that studio system as well, and cuts an a- album w- of all but one song by a guy named Billy Joe Shaver, which is a complete break with the Billy Sherrill Country Politan style.
2: Right. The, the, these were guys who saw a band as as being the backup, not an orchestra. You know, they they had fiddles, not violins. They had pedal steel guitars. Um, in their bands. And, and that was, that was very traditional, but very radical at the same time. It also doesn't hurt that both Whalen and and, uh, Willie were from Texas, which was kind of at the bottom of the, um, bottom of the list for, um, for uh, Nashville's country music establishment. I mean, Texas had never been popular in Nashville and even when it was making lots and lots and lots of money and when some of the top acts in in nashville were from texas people like um ernest hub you know george the, jones george jones the, yeah, Purcell, and, and
1: yeah.
2: that that aspect of them was pretty much ignored um they were expected to conform to the Nashville way of doing things. And when, when Cheryl had his revolution, was both acceptable to the suits in Nashville and to the public, you know, that, that was a formula that was going to make a lot of money. So he discovered a young woman named Pugh Wynette. Uh, sorry, Wynette Pew. that was her name. Uh, and she was a hairdresser. And she had a a great voice. And so he started developing her as an act who could exist in this, what became known as country-politan sound. But the idea soon escaped um, Columbia and Columbia Nashville. And it was found on uh, records by RCA, which was another huge presence in Nashville. And also from other maverick uh, people like Kenny Rogers,
1: who had been a, a folky in, in Houston and had been sort of put out a psychedelic pop classic in the late sixties to checking out my, with the first edition just checked in to check out the condition. My condition was in, I think immortalized yeah. in the big Lebowski.
2: Like what, what condition my condition was in, you know, I, he he was from a musical family his brother had a record label where the 13th floor elevator elevators recorded um and he he had been mooching around nashville trying to make it and uh, finally decided to um, do a country-political
1: approach and uh, that catapulted him to stardom and that pretty much wraps us up and and almost finishes up the book, The History of Rock and Roll Volume 2. But Ed, I want you to come back and we'll talk about the epilogue you tacked on, which is The Death of Elvis. And that's the reason the book is titled 1964 to 1977, even though, as we've discussed, 1974 might be better. But Ed, look forward to having you back on to discuss one of the darkest days in rock and roll history, The Death of Elvis Presley.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Yuri Campbell returns to ask, What did we learn from Elijah Wald's Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson, and the Invention of the Blues? Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.